you know what? Screw, like, coming up with any wacky bits, which is basically just me talking to myself for ten minutes before we start. I might as well just carry on the conversation we were having before we started recording. My landlord's done a runner of a sort. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've obviously sort of been giving some updates on the podcast um, occasionally, every few weeks, about the issues with this house, um, the maintenance issues that the landlord is ignoring to the detriment of the property, some of which are health risks. We had an inspection uh, a couple of weeks ago. The letting agent came round to have a look at all of our complaints, and they haven't been able to contact the landlord since. And I'm in the middle of, of sending an email back to them where I'm like... For all of the reminders that they send me when I forget to pay the rent, because, you know, ADHD, I I always forget to pay it on the day. The landlord's always quick to fucking get at me about that. So where I've basically just been left with these uh, maintenance issues for weeks, um, I do feel disinclined to be prompt or present at all on rent day. I mean, first of all, I know people on the council. I shall be, like, putting in health complaints. I, we've had to cross that point now because clearly I'm not going to get anything done through the landlord. This is not good. I've said, like, we have a basement where, like, vermin's getting in. We have plumbing issues where water is just leaking and the landlord refused. Like, we had plumbers look at it and they said, the sink we have will keep leaking. It needs to come out. And it really is. Laura, you've seen the downstairs bathroom. You know how absurd that weird little sink is. The thing that's just Mm. sort of, like, hanging to the wall by a bolt. It's just a weird little bowl on a pole. Like, the plumbers have said, it's not good. It needs to come out and be replaced. And the landlord's like, no, too expensive. So the other, the only alternative is we have to keep bringing a, la- a, a plumber in, which will only be more expensive. And clearly, this fucking landlord, can't, I don't think she can afford the, the maintenance on this place. Uh, this house this, is this an albatross. Is... This is the secret about so many fucking landlords, is they literally cannot afford to upkeep the properties they have. Um, fun fact, I'm pretty sure that's going on, uh, what's going on where I live currently, where we are having problems with our roof that, uh, are only gonna get worse the longer they're left unchecked, but money would need to be spent to get it dealt with, and... I don't think the landlord has the money to deal with it. I think that's the problem. And they subject us to income checks when we try and, like, rent a property. They subject us to all these... Like, I had such a hard time finding a place because I moved back from the States and so many of my financial records were American. And so much of, of British housing is designed to, like keep foreign people out basically because it's a you know I mean, structurally xenophobic country even 
even just generally as someone self-employed, it's a fucking nightmare to be yeah. like, I, I can prove to you that I can pay bills. Mm, again, you know. So why aren't landlords subject to income check? Well, obviously we know why. It's the same reason that like they can just not do the repairs that need doing to your property, but you can't in response not pay them the rent. There is a power imbalance that yeah, affects obviously. many things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I say why, <sighs> I do know the answer. But why aren't they subject to income checks like we are? You shouldn't be a landlord if you can't afford it. There's an analogy that can be drawn, you know, to, to I mean, basically any business, but we can certainly examine this in the context of the video game industry, since this is ostensibly a video game podcast. This would be, you know, kind of like if you were to pay out a ton of investor dividends over the years, year on year on year, and then have to keep laying off employees to the point where you can't produce a quality product anymore. And then eventually yeah. you get bought out. I mean, I want this place. Yeah. I like this yeah. place. It's... For what it is, it's... It would be reasonably priced for the size and what I can do with it. It's yeah. main room here is big enough for like mistakes I might make with the acquisition of pinball tables. You know. <laughs> Accidents happen. You could squeeze another pinball table in that room for sure. I am in the market. Uh, maybe I, a specific one that you've seen. Maybe maybe the bride of pinball. Um actually <laughs> the the fucking guy hasn't got back to me about well, hasn't hasn't responded to the sale, so I might not be able to get it. I might just have to cancel the thing because he's not got back to me, which would suck because I have always wanted. There, are, there are very few pinball tables where I would be like, I explicitly, specifically want that. But one, anyone who's seen the Bride of Pinbutt has mm -hmm. said, "Oh no, that is like the most Stephanie Sterling, like." One of the bookers at Soft Pro Wrestling, when I was um, Facebooking about it, like said it was the most Stephanie Sterling Facebook post he's ever read. Where I'm like, I have to get the mach the machine Bride of Pinbot because look at the robot's aesthetic. I should have been born looking like that. And there's a modesty mode to stop the robot from being so sexually suggestive. It's mm -hmm. the most me table. Look, even if you put it in modesty mode, like, just from a quick glance at the physical pinball table, it does still look like one of your objectives is to shoot the pinball into her robo-vagina, I'm pretty pretty sure. <laughs> well, it, it's a... I, I, well, maybe. I know that her mouth looks like a blow-up sex doll mouth. <laughs> like, it's just the I mean, big round... Oh. I mean, look, it's look a I'm looking at this hole. pinball table now. She has... Tits, a happy trail of hearts, and then like a, a circle that is like very definitively. Here's the target. Go for it. Just like, I like me. that. I didn't even have to look up Bride of Pinbot. I know it is etched into my brain <laughs> because I grew up in the 1980s. Damn right. Hmm. That is one of the few pinball tables that I've always been fascinated by, and I did see it. And I have got another freelance gig um, at the moment, so I could invest it and. I did impulsively, but I might not be able to get it. But the thing is, I got a real... And here's where it's dangerous. The other week when you were around, Laura, and we had like all the guests over, and I'm looking to host more 
um, and just people mm. more in general. Because um, I really enjoyed having everyone over. Um, yeah. So I might have more people over. I know um, Mike from PPW wants to come over and watch more World of Sport together. <laughs> watch more <laughs> of those like old dads and pub players wrestling from oh, the 70s. Yeah. Um, the idea of, of like turning the house into a miniature arcade is really tempting. Right. Really tempting. Um, I'm going to have to get a lot more freelance work. But anyway, the point is, I I do want this house. And I'm at a point now where I'm like, I've settled back in the country enough to where it would be a, a scary prospect, but I could potentially invest in a home. And... If you're in that position, better to do that than like pay rent forever and just pay for someone else's fucking house. But I just I I love this house and it fucking sucks to see it fall apart due to the negligence of someone else. It really sucks to be like, I like the place where I am and it, it it is in disrepair, and I want it to stay in a state where I can live in it, and it's okay. And seemingly the person for whom it is an asset cares less about it than I do. Yeah. And I am genuinely convinced that... Because I know the rent was lowered before I got it, because they wanted more, and even the letting agent was like, you won't get that. Um, I know they've considered living here, but there's so much maintenance they'd have to do. And they don't live too near either. I don't think she necessarily wants it, but that she does want to just sit back and be given free money for it and have me, like, pay it off for her. Um, But I'm not letting it go. I can't let it go. It's a health risk. So... If the landlord's unwilling and the letting agent's unable to do anything about it, my next step is getting the fucking council involved. I am going to be a real fucking problem now. A real fucking problem. And my hope is, eventually, she'll work out that it is going to be cheaper in the long run to just let me buy the place. And due to the damage, I will not be uh, offering what she wants anywhere close so anyway that's my life right now how's everyone else i continue to be working real hard on a bunch of stuff i can't entirely talk about life is going good and it's all stuff that's kind of just i got a bunch of extra work for no immediately visible benefit but it's going good i know i mean the and I asked you the other day how you're going, and you had to write an essay in response <laughs> of, like, everything you've got going on. Um, even even when I had some energy, I didn't have that much. Um, I am honestly pretty tired. <laughs> yeah, I, I am not surprised. Um Proud of you, though. I'm very excited for you. I mean, you've got so much happening. It, it really is oh, thank, incredible. Thank you. Cool. How are you doing, Conrad? You doing all I'm right? Sure, it's the same shit. It's just a different day. Um, Getting on with the work, being sleepy. Yep, pretty much. 
Pretty much. Um, I didn't play any video games this week because I've been backed up on some projects that need doing, and so I just haven't been able to, like, any time that I have spent not working on something has been either watching a little TV with my wife or playing a little bit of Stardew Valley. Um, but that's it. Like, just head down editing stuff a lot this past uh week Mm, i've played i've played a little bit of stuff but nothing that required any kind of real time investment for me so i think i think maybe it makes sense for steph to start because you played you played a reasonable number of things this week had a fair old crack had a fair old crack yeah what you what you what you play uh well i played payday three that came out um, a couple of days ago. Was uh, that necessary, Payday 3? I thought Payday 2 could have just run for fucking ever the way they'd built out its monetization scheme. <laughs> yeah. Um, this one seems... It's so far significantly less monetized. Um, It'd have to be. Yeah. Yeah, from a practical logistical standpoint, <laughs> right. I don't know if it is possible to be more so. Um... Yeah, I haven't seen any microtransaction stuff in it at all so far, but it does look like it's primed to, uh, like it's prepped for insertion, definitely lubed up for it. But in terms of it being necessary, just in general, I ask that question, like Mm -hmm. just from a game standpoint, it's more payday and I've enjoyed it well enough but i think part of the reason i have is i have not paid played payday 2 since it was fairly new right um which was fuck a long time ago now a very 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 long time ago but i think it it really says something that i could have not played it for such a long time yet still pick this up and think i don't need to play this i've played it before (laughs) and again it's not been a bad experience at least when matchmaking has worked because it fucking ain't it's been really hard to get a game going and next to impossible to get games into like like for the later harder heists um i don't think i've played anything beyond the first three or four heists with a full crew of four players and that's on like Game Pass, um, mm. and I know that the they've had a lot of like server issues, like maintenance issues and stuff. So I don't know how much is that, and how much is people not necessarily playing it. Um, I know that I've encountered very few Xbox players. Um, there have been PC players, but almost entirely. Um, but yeah, it's. It really is just more payday. You turn up, you engage, you you give it a good honest go at trying to do it stealthy. Realise that for all of its potential to have been a bank robbery hitman style game, it just fucking ain't. And then you take mm. hostages and uh, shoot cops. Now that's been an interesting experience. For a very, very, very long time, I've, shall we say, trended a little bit left politically. 
I I've noticed that. Yeah, just, just yeah, a smidge, just a smidge. There was a time when I was way more centrist, and when I was young and very stupid, had that little like libertarian dalliance that people have mm. when they're young and stupid. I wouldn't say I've ever been like fucking right wing or anything, but I certainly wasn't as as left leaning as I am these days. But I have been that for a long time. But when Payday 2 came out, I think I was still pretty... I I was being called an SJW at that point, which is anything left of the centre-right, really, to qualify for being called Mm. that by gamers. But I certainly didn't feel as sort of plugged in, and and I certainly wasn't as as explicitly anti-capitalist and um, anti-establishment as I am these days had streaks of it, but there was a lot that I was clueless on. So I did find it interesting that when I last played this, I was like, these characters aren't heroic. Like, they are killing so many cops just for money. And now I'm playing it and thinking, this is great. I get to kill cops and I'm being paid for it. Um, So that's been a a fun change in um, dynamic um, with it. But other than that, I'm trying to think of things to say. Like, I was going to review it, but I honestly don't even know what I'm going to fucking say. It's... You shoot the cops, you get the money. There you yeah. go. I I am... I am whelmed. It is not a bad <laughs> game. It is not a great game. It really is just... Huh. Like, it was fine this past weekend. I was bored. Um, At points... And had some shit to do. Like, I needed to pass some time. I had a booking on Saturday and was like, had nothing going on in the morning. So it took up quite a bit of time last week. But it wasn't time that I cherish. It was time that I otherwise would have spent, like, finding something else to do. So it was it was there. Um yeah, I'm gonna, just going to stop talking about it because I'm just belaboring the point that it's just not much of a not not much to say. I'm just I'm just going to cut dead. Done. <laughs> In terms of stuff I've played, I don't have a huge amount to say about this first one. I want to talk about, but I wanted to play something new this week, and I had like a limited amount of time, and I was like, what what have I what have I like had code for? that has like a pretty short how how long to play uh, time on it and i jumped into something called amanda the adventurer which is a short narrative horror game about a bunch of vhs tapes about a fictional children's tv show hmm. um it is pretty light on on um content in terms of like interaction with the game um a lot of your interactions are like or at least early on put in a vhs tape at some point answer some questions in the sort of dora the explorer style point to the place where i can go get sweets or whatever and in the way that these things do things get a little creepier as time goes on uh but you'll sort of finish your tape and then There'll be a little puzzle in the room to find the next tape that will be somehow based on information you learned in that tape. It didn't take more than maybe, like, I'm going to say, like, 30, 40 minutes to 
play through a first run of it. And it's very clear that this is a game you are supposed to play through multiple times. Um, because you you learn information by the end of a run that when you start over from the beginning, you can use to change how the next run goes. Mm. And it's clear that it's a narrative that's evolving over. I don't know how many how many runs, but like each of them is short enough that I haven't felt like I am unnecessarily repeating a lot of content that I've already seen. And I appreciate that um, there is an ability to fast forward through stuff that is, this is going to play out exactly the way it did last last loop, just fast forward the tape. And it'll fast forward exactly to either the next choice or before something changes from what you saw last loop. And that feels respectful of my time. The puzzle aspects of it are at times a little bit... I don't want to say moon logic. I I think that does them a disservice. But I think they're occasionally a little um, inconsistent in the degree of logic they're expecting from you. Mm. The complexity is a little all over the place of them. One of them might be uh, the character on the show makes makes a pie and talks you through like the three very basic steps of making the pie. You put this in the tin, you turn it to this temperature, you turn it to this time on the oven, and then you, you know, at, out in the world outside of the tape, you go make a pie like that. And then there might be one where it's like, okay, a time on a clock is said very noticeably out loud. Cool, I go put that on the very obvious clock and it works and no progress has happened. Okay, you were meant to go spot, like, several other clocks, and there's several other clocks in the room, and there's nothing to necessarily clue you into which clock needs which time input into it of the clocks you saw. Uh, So you're going to have to do some, like, slightly unnecessarily trial trial and error, um, which is, like, a little bit not conducive to, like, the pace, uh, the, the, the flow of this being as good as it could be. I am enjoying going through it and trying to get a sense of like where its narrative is going. If I talked about this after finishing the first loop, I'd have probably said its horror is a little predictable. It's a little one note. It's the children's show, but it's getting a bit self-aware and it's and and some things that are not child-friendly are happening. Ooh, that's a bit spooky. To its credit, as I've gone into the second and started trying to do a third loop, it has branched into other areas of horror that are doing a good job of walking the line of this not being an overly, like, grotesque and traumatising for trauma's sake horror experience, but touching on themes that, like, are are creepy. I've been trying to think about about what, what this tone is, and I think it's like, you know how if someone had picked up Doki Doki Literature Club without knowing it was a horror game and children should not be playing it, there is some shit in that that is definitely not fucking okay to show kids. This very much walks a line where, like, hey, if your eight-year-old ended up picking it up uh, without knowing it was a horror experience necessarily, I don't think there's anything that is too terrible, at least from what I've seen so far, but it's more like... Hey, what if this like little uh, sheep character who has had the ability to speak because it's a little children's show the whole time? Now we're doing an episode about the sounds that animals make, and that animal is only supposed to be saying "bar" and is getting quite scared as it loses the ability to speech, uh, which is like 
scary, but not in a... You know what I mean. Yeah, that's some more, like, existential horror. It's not, like, violence. Yeah. It's, it's existentialism... Um, in a way that is, like, it's probably going to have more of an impact on people who are older playing it anyway. And I think it walks that line, at least from what I've seen so far, it's walking that line pretty well. Um, I have not finished it, I, I don't know how I'm gonna feel about it by the end, but I'm, 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 I'm having an interesting time with it. Um, I... It's a little slow to get going, but I'm, I feel like I'm getting the rhythm of what it wants out of me now. So uh, that was Amanda the Adventurer. That sounds uh, neat. It's, it's, it's been, it's, it's interesting so far. Um, what about you, Steph? What else you played this week? Uh, I have been doing more, um, more of that low poly horror stuff. Yeah. You know, we talked about Knights at the Gates of Hell and Bloodwash and all of that. I... Went back, uh, looked at some more puppet combo stuff. Got two that I could talk about. One is called Rewind or Die. Uh, this was, I forget the developer of this. It's another one published under the Torture Star label. Another first person horror game. Same sort of low poly PSX style graphics and that. This time you, it's in the north of England. And it's clear that like they didn't get any voice actors to do the voices. They are just like, proper fucking northerners and it's hilarious it's just just northern brits mumbling into a microphone you're doing me fucking head you fucking dickhead i really enjoy it it's quite a well put together game it's called rewind or die because it like the first part of the game is in a video store i think it's set in like 97 98 something like that um and so it's got this really neat sort of feel to it um Unfortunately, that is only like the first part of the game. Then you're in a slaughterhouse being chased by a half-naked man with a pig head on. And that's one of the issues with the game is it's very stock standard. I find nothing scary nor memorable about a half-naked man wearing a pig's head calling me Little Piggy. Because that is so done. So overdone. But the actual game, you know hunting around this slaughterhouse, finding the items to open doors and, and turn on machines, all of that. It's very well made. So if you are a fan of these uh, styles of games or you've wanted to get into them, but because many people have said they've had similar issues with me where they played something like Nun Massacre and found it fucking impenetrable. This still has some of that hunt around for the item that's hard to see among all the other messy brown splodgy things that have five polygons between them. But it's very playable. The other one I played is a demo for a game that's coming out early next year. And this is the next game by Black Eyed Priest and Henry Hoare, who did Night at the Gates of Hell and Bloodwash. So it had my attention. It's called Sniper Killer. They're trying something a bit different with it. It's still, again... The same types of graphics, the same um, first-person perspective, still a horror game, of course. This time it's it's played from multiple perspectives. The demo gives us three different perspectives, one of which is a girl at the beginning who's being photographed and is then shot by the uh, titular sniper killer. The second perspective is the sniper killer himself, and then the... Um, you switch to a journalism student who's trying to work out who killed the first girl. That's interesting, playing as both the killer and the people investigating. Um, the killer section is interesting. 
the demo only has this one section at a fun fair where you've been told who you've got to kill and you can't kill anyone else. So it's basically a simple little puzzle of find a vantage point in the fun fair, find the guy in the werewolf costume and shoot him. I made the mistake of going on the roller coaster at first and I couldn't get off it. So I had to start the demo again because even though it's technically possible, given those controls, and I'm, I was playing it on the Steam Deck and it's not been optimized for Steam Deck yet, a fast moving roller coaster that's going up and down and only has a brief window of time to shoot with really oversensitive controls while trying to get a bead on this werewolf character model among all the other low detailed character models. It was just really fucking hard. But there were multiple vantage points, so you can do that. And I'm assuming the full game will have these moments in between the the other character or characters where you're the killer and you've got to find a spot, then identify the target based on the description, which is neat and interesting for a for what is a horror game. And after having played so many of these games now, from Puppet Combo and others, where so many of them boil down to there is a killer on the loose and you are running from it. So many of them are variants of you are in a building and something is chasing you and you're hiding while picking stuff up. The fact that you play as the killer for parts of the game is already interesting. And the the conceit is the actual killer is different. It's not just some like Jason Voorhees knockoff. They're a sniper and that is just plain different from all of the mask-wearing lunatics with cleavers. Well, that's true, because you're not... A sniper doesn't really chase you. A sniper tracks you. You know, a sniper waits for the opportunity. Yeah, that is different. And you find them. I mean, that's the... They are the stationary target that you are hunting. In a sense, you are hunting the sniper. I hope that is evidenced in the main game. Uh, In the demo, there isn't an example of that. But you are right. Because, you know, when we think about one of the best boss fights in video games, it is the one against the end. end. Yeah. Yeah. The cat and mouse gameplay, I think cat and mouse is a big part of of most media involving snipers. Mm -hmm. Where the sniper obviously is a, a credible and terrifying threat. You know, they are death that can come from anywhere. But it is just as tense for them. Right. So the demo only had... The introductory sequence, which was controllable, but there was no major gameplay. Then the sniping sequence, which was just, you know, find a high point, shoot the unaware target. And then the next two sections were with this journalism student. The first is talking to some characters uh, at the crime scene. The second, she's been told to meet someone to talk about the sniper killer. Her associate gets shot. And you're chased. It, it, you are being chased by them. Um, I don't know how much of an actual gameplay chase sequence that is. You start on the street and then stuff around you is just being shot. Which was, it was certainly cool. And then you go into a subway station and you can just hear them behind you. And then you hide in a bathroom stall and they eventually go away. And that's more or less what the demo is. I am certainly hoping that they take some cues from the end in the finished game and that there is a lot more of that cat and mouse element to it. We will see. But I do think that 
having played many of these games, and it's not just in comparison to the stuff Torture Star's doing or this sort of PSX horror movement that's been happening, compared to just horror in general, like all horror games, that is a juicy premise. Mm Mm-hmm. I really like this idea of this sniper. And the actual, the perspective of the sniper is interesting as well, because from their dialogue and how the gameplay is being presented to them, it's clear they only think this, but they are on missions from either the CIA or the government, like some professional organization killing bad people. But we know that's not true because it's a woman just trying to make a bit of money that she needs doing photography in a creepy man's apartment is the first victim. Like, right. so we know. But when you play as the killer, all the internal monologue and stuff is like, here's my new case. And you get an answer machine message from like your coworker who's talking about um, something that happened at work. And the sniper's in a monologue after you listen to the call is talking about how you hate doing that job for your cover Mm. because you've been assigned here so yeah it's it's fucking interesting and as i've said before in out of all of these psx style horror games i've been playing henry horror and black eyed priest are the ones doing it right so very promising I, I do like how I went from playing Nun Massacre and thinking, is is this a fucking joke that I don't get? To, I am now eagerly anticipating the release of a Torture Star game. Because the other work by, by these two devs has been really quite something. And again, this is like Bloodwash and Knights at the Gates of Hell. From the demo alone, it's got so many similarities to all these games that are following a very particular style but it is unlike any of them, and unlike other games I've played. So, yeah, the demo's on Steam, uh, if any listeners are interested, and it takes maybe 20 minutes at most to to try the demo. So, yeah, uh, worth checking out if you have been interested in these horror games I've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Other games I can get out of the way pretty quickly. Um, I've started playing around with uh, Train Sim World 4. I will be honest... It's not clear a huge amount has changed since Train Sim World 3. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's more Train Sim World, but, you know, it's not so drastically different. Anyone who's playing Train Sim World 3 necessarily needs to feel the, the urge to instantly go beyond the new one. I appreciate the amount of, like, single-player content that is, like, authored that is in uh, this new one. Like, the big difference... To my experience between like the 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 year numbered train sim and train sim world is the year based one is uh hey here's the tracks here's the trains just do whatever it's up to you we're not going to enforce it whereas train sim world has a lot more authored content that is like we're going to actually pay attention to like this is the times you're supposed to be hitting stations and the marks you're supposed to be stopping on and the signals you need to be paying attention that you're not running I've been playing a bunch of content in the East Coast Mainline UK uh, trains, the uh, LNER Resuma. There is two campaigns just for this one train and track combination, the first of which I did like a two and a half, three hour long stream. I got three missions in out of 27 missions in the first campaign for this train and track combo. Jesus. There's a lot of content in there. 
if you want to be put on a real world train track and told, here's the times you've got to get to the next station, go, go, go. I'm having fun with it. Um, Things I have appreciated, the single player campaign content, you know, it'll start with like, hey, we put you in the train and just like teach you the controls that are specific to this train to make sure you're up to speed. Cool, we got that. Now that that's done, let's just give you a little history lesson about the train and when it came into service and sort of what it replaced and uh, the history of the train line that's going on. Let's tell you a little history lesson about like this train uh, primarily is electrical powered, but here's the backup engine option they have if the electrical option fails and sort of what they can do with that. And for me, that's great. I enjoy being like, cool, I got to do a little bit of basic maths to work out what speed I got to go to get to my next station on time while you just tell me some train facts. That is a good time to me. So if you are specifically me and have my specific desires to drive a train through the east coast of England while being told train facts and largely just setting a speed and not really thinking about it until you got to go, oh, got to slow down for that signal. It's more of that. Trains in World 4. Uh, what else have you been playing this week, Steph? What else have I been playing? I know I've been playing something. I keep fucking... I think there's a couple of other things you've played. Well, I mentioned I've been on my pinball bullshit. I did play a couple pinball games. Pinball Wicked is an early access game, and it's one pinball table, a pirate-themed one, and it's really impressive for an indie effort looks really good like a lot of indie pinball tables are well they're not 3d for one whereas this is maybe not quite at the no no i'd say maybe at the sort of graphical level of like pinball fx3 like your top sort of Hmm. pinball um software i mean there's not a lot on the market when i say top and it plays really nicely I'm not one who sort of gives out about physics, like pinball physics, like a lot of people who are like super into pinball video games are. But from what I can tell, really solid physics. Ball feels good. I played for a while. It ran really nicely on the Steam Deck. And then was disappointed to find that it hasn't had any updates or news since like um, the beginning of 2020. Oh, no. And not like a real update since like 2019. And that's a real shame because I was like, wow, this is a this is really fucking solid pinball table. And and I would look forward to seeing more of it and see what more of these devs could do because you don't get a lot of pinball video game devs. Not really, no. Not a lot. Zen Pinball slash Pinball FX have sort of been the biggest name in it and almost the final word in it because you don't get much outside of that i did play one called tokyo pinball recently which is an indie one just has sort of a 16-bit aesthetic and that's very cute just one table very small little game that's cute but there isn't much and it's just sad that a team that's clearly capable of making a very good pinball game just sort of disappeared the other one I played is also in early access, and that's Xeno uh, Tilt. This is a follow-up to um, Devil's Tilt, which I have talked about before. Uh, that is on Steam and on the Switch, and I think Xbox. I think it might be on Game Pass, actually. Um, but that's that pinball table that's got sort of real aesthetic similarities to, like, Devil Crush. Sort of those old sort mm. of Turbo Graphics era um pinball video games a big very tall sort of three-tiered 
pinball table. Uh, structurally, in terms of layout and everything, it's incredibly similar to Devil's Tilt, except instead of a sort of monsters and demons aesthetic, it's a sci-fi aesthetic. Uh, one interesting change they made was that if you rest the ball on the flippers and then pull down on the stick, uh, turrets come out the sides and just shoot all of the little enemies that are flying around. That's neat. Um, but otherwise, it's it's incredibly similar. And they're really well made and they look gorgeous. The, the whole aesthetic and the sound and everything and just how visually dazzling they are impressive stuff there is something fucking annoying i find about them though i'm not sure what it is but like the prevalence that game has to throw things down the little fucking gutter at the side i do find them particularly irritating and xeno till i've had less patience for than uh, devil's till but early access things could change and i can't fault how well made it is incredibly well put together um people who like devil's till see no reason why they wouldn't really love Xeno Tilt as well. And I was um, emulating some old older pinball games, as I'm sometimes wont to do, uh, on the Steam Deck. So a little bit before we recorded, I was playing um, Pokemon Pinball, Ruby and Sapphire, the old Game Boy Advance one. That's a fun oh, it is pinball a game. lovely little pinball game. It really is. It is a lovely little mm. one. Definitely sort of up there with um, the, the, the more classic ones. And that's about it. Um, did I actually play anything else of note this week? Uh, I think the oh. main of the one you've got on there is Trombone Champ. I did play Trombone Champ, yes. Um, is this your first time playing it? Did you play it when it was on PC? I never got round to it, no. I, I It did have my eye, because obviously everyone had heard of it. Right. Um, yeah. I never got round to it. So... It coming out on Switch reminded me it existed, and then you talking about it last week reminded me to actually try it. So I have been playing Trombone Champ. I mean, it is a brilliant idea. Right. It, it is just a brilliant, stupid game. Um, just one of those games that took a joke and made something that's actually worth playing. Because mm-hmm. it is fun. Like, so there are games that... You get the value after watching the trailer because it's mm. it's a game that's just a joke and you've gotten the joke already. That's the thing. Like, I got into, like, specifically trying to, like, chase S ranks on tracks in this. And usually a game with this kind of premise doesn't really care about you wanting to do that. Yeah. It's so stupid and so chaotic that you don't mind doing too badly. No. And there's no pressure the game puts on you to feel like you should be acing it. But it is still competent enough that you can if you want to. And I I do like just how silly it is. Like not just in terms of the concept, but like the loading screens. Just the fact that it says it's commencing loadment when it loads like just the silly little language it has the made-up trombone facts you know i enjoy a lot of those uh silly little lyrics to songs that aren't supposed to have lyrics yeah. that you occasionally catch out the corner of your eye oh yeah i mean just the visuals as well like overall um when you're playing in the hall of the mountain king and like all of the <laughs> renaissance era looking devils and things are just popping up more and more as it speeds up it's a very charming game. My one issue with it, and I've, 
now that I've whacked the sensitivity up to max, it's helped. Mm. But the amount you have to tilt up and down, like I've strained my wrist a little bit. And I know some of it's me because in order to mitigate that, I need to remember to like use my elbow to move up and down as well. But when I'm casually playing, I'm not thinking about that until I'm halfway through a track and I'm like, my fucking wrist aches. It's not entirely you. I've been playing a bit more of the Switch version recently, and yeah, I have found myself falling into habits where I have, I've not been great about not feeling a bit of pain doing it. And like, I played this through on PC, and mouse is definitely a lot easier to be precise about your movements with, even if they put things in the way to deliberately, like, they invert your mouse movements to try and throw your brain a bit uh, as default. But like, even then, I was finding that a bit with with Mouse. There is something about this game's design that causes me to tense up and get real, like, ah, I'm, I need to do good at these wonky controls. And no matter what control method I use, I end up with a little bit of pain going on. Well, I'm glad it's not just, like, I'm, I'm glad it's not entirely yeah. me doing something wrong. But mm. that has been a, an impediment, sadly. I've just not been all that comfortable playing it for too long. But it is a really good game. If you are enjoying it and that is becoming a barrier and you are wanting to see it through, it might be worth playing it on PC. Yeah. Because, like, look, I like the nonsense they're doing on Switch. And I think it generally, like, particularly with the, as you say, with the sensitivity turned up, it does do a good job of balancing uncontrollable nonsense with I can actually get good at this. But, like, Mouse is just a bit a bit less of a barrier to enjoying what this game is trying to do. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, obviously, with the Switch, I can just change the controls and, yeah, and yeah. you know, just use the, the analog sticks or whatever. It, I didn't want to do that because it felt like a shame. Well, I struggled with it on an analog on PC. Like, it was brutal, unless yes. they've made some yeah. changes. Yeah. I've played around a bit with the Switch analog stick. It is the same as on PC. Like, analog stick is the one control method I would recommend against. Like, before that, I would suggest trying the IR to move your hand back and forth. I I don't know. I couldn't put a word on what was wrong with the analog controls. It was just... It wasn't fast enough. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't react to reversal, I think, fast enough to... like. And that's, in part, like, maybe, to a certain degree, my physical limitation of being able to move back and forth at the right timing. But it just did not work for me at all. Yeah. I was wildly going out of control. I think I feel like it accelerates a bit on movement too, but I could be misremembering. Mm. But yeah, staying in range was was really really hard with the analog. It felt like I had to be way more precise, which is weird in a game about being not that precise. Right. But yeah, I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you're having some fun with it. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I've played, and I've not got a huge amount to say about it, but, um, I've, I've been continuing to play Halls of Torment. I'm still really enjoying that. Um, I have, like, seven characters unlocked now. I, I finally got my first couple of, um, stages where I completed the full half hour and the boss that comes at the end. Despite having, like, not taken them seriously initially, the cleric is fucking overpowered. The cleric is great. <laughs> fucking love the cleric. I want to play more of the other characters, but... Right now I am in my the cleric is the best and you can't convince me otherwise era, so 
I'm gonna keep doing that until until I run out of stuff to do with the cleric, and then I guess I'll play other characters for a bit. It's really feeling up there with like Bone Razor minions in terms of like one of the the better vampire survivors games I've played. Yeah. Um, the quality of it. Yeah, it's got a it's got a decent chunk of content. The quality is there. It's got like mechanical things that separate it from those contemporaries, and I keep coming back to it. Like I keep wanting to get further into it, and it's 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 stuck onto me pretty long term. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I really like Halls of Torment. I need to. I've not played it for quite some time. I'm looking forward to seeing what they add because great idea doing it Diablo style. Yeah. Great idea, and they have followed through on the execution really well. Yeah. Uh. So, should we talk about a couple of bits of news before we finish up? Let's do it. Let's do a couple of those. Um, so, finally putting one little saga to bed for a while, at least for now. Uh, you know how the, uh, the the CMA in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority, was the, uh, the, the last real holdout for the uh, Microsoft Activision Blizzard King acquisition? Was. That, that feels very past tense. Yeah, the, uh, that last domino does seem to have fallen. Um, the CMA has provisionally agreed to uh let the uh the 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 deal go ahead the only real change that has happened was the uh agreement to sell the UK and European game streaming rights for Hatch Vision Blizzard King titles to Ubisoft and Ubisoft would be in charge of of uh, licensing that out to streaming services which would be a great little asset to have if you were the sort of people thinking about selling your business yeah, yeah, it would, wouldn't it just? But it does seem that, uh, according to the CMA, they have very few remaining concerns with the New Deal, and they're like, we think this is basically enough for us to say yes. There's a couple of little back-and-forth things they're going to be doing between now and the 6th of October before it finalises the decision. So it's not, like, finalised, finalised, but... The CMA does not seem to uh, be opposed to the deal anymore, so it is a matter of time that deal's going through, and it was always going sure. to, but that, that last little bit of resistance has uh, given up the ghost. I have seen a fair bit of people just sort of shrugging, and yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't think yeah. of anything else to say. It's, it's not good. For the industry at large, there might be some minor benefit for some classes of employees, but they will mm-hmm. also wind up losing a lot of jobs um, in you know a year or two when they want to trim fat and yada yada yada. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, gonna be bad all around long term. Yeah, we'll see over time exactly how it shakes out. Other stories this week. And I feel like this is going to be a recurrent story we have, like, every now and then for a while. We got more Embracer group layoffs. Mm-hmm. More of those happening. Uh, not a huge number, but it is more layoffs. This time, the batch of layoffs has hit uh, Crystal Dynamics, the developer of the Tomb Raider reboot series. And the creators of Gex. Yeah. Legendary yeah. Gex developer, Crystal Dynamics. 
See, this is what happens when you don't make a Gex game in like twenty years. I, is oh, is that is that why these people got laid <laughs> off? It's nothing to do with the two billion like Saudi money that vanished for Embracer. It's because they didn't Look, make another Gex. If, they, if they'd had a Gex game in the pipeline, they'd have been deemed too valuable to trim. That's all I'm saying. Oh uh, yeah, so not much to add about it other than this is going to keep happening for a oh, while. Yeah. Um, it's, again, a great example of the problems with one company buying up every fucking company mm. and then making one mistake and it being everyone else's problem. All those formerly stable companies that are now, you know, at, at risk through no fault of their own. Yep, yep. Other updates to previous stories. We got an update to the Unity uh, per-install runtime fee situation. I'll, I'll give you the facts and then we'll we'll get into the rest of it. Unity has rolled back about 90% of what they were pushing for. The new situation is undoubtedly not as terrible, but it is still not good. Hmm. And we have at least one story this week of a developer for whom the new situation is still fucking them over. Basically, uh, I'm going to try and summarize this as best I can. Developers using the free version of Unity will have the number of, um, the amount of money they can make with it before they have to move to the paid version of Unity is being doubled. So that threshold has gone from $100,000 to $200,000 before they got to pay Unity any money. And interestingly, this is really interesting, games made with the free version of Unity will no longer have the requirement that they have to have the Made in Unity splash screen on them. <laughs> this is something that, like, for years we've been talking to Unity about their image problem on, and they finally folded on that. And I wonder, because we always thought, gosh, that reputationally, that's gotta be... <laughs> but maybe, maybe that was a lot smarter than we ever realized. Because all of those shitty, shitty, shitty games... People would look at them and they'd say, shit, I could do better than that. Like, I wonder how many people came into Unity thinking that these are shit, but it must be easy to make games as a result. I'm going to use this. And now they don't need that because they don't need to capture audience. They're trying to profit off of the audience they have. They think that they've hit the limit on how many people they can exploit. And now they're getting paid. With the way things are going, they might need to attract new people well, because it does seem like a lot of people are going to bail. But well, <laughs> yeah. So the further bit to that is that per install runtime fee was basically a revenue split in, right. you know, in a more complicated format. And they're still going to have that exist. Um, the new option is if you go above a million dollars in gross revenue trailing for 12 months so in a specific 12 month calendar period you made more than a million you will have to start dealing with new fees and you have two options you can either do the runtime fee they were talking about before or you can give them 2.5% uh, of the game's self-reported monthly gross revenue, whichever is the less money of those two options. Wow, how generous of them. Right. I've been reading a lot of feedback from a lot of indie developers through to like mid-sized devs on this, and the consensus I've seen is 
This is less of an, a drastic emergency right this second for my in-development project, but I'm still getting out when I can. Mm-hmm. I don't fucking trust uh, Unity. Right. And a big part of that is they are saying that this will only apply to developers who move to the new version of Unity released in January or like early next year. You can use your existing Unity version and not move to this. But as many people have pointed out, they promised that in the past. They previously had a promise where, like, hey, if you use a Unity version, we won't force you to move to a new a new version. You can stay on the one that's working for you. They've made this promise before, and devs do not seem to have any faith that they will keep it this time where they didn't last time. Beyond that, a lot of devs have been rightly pointing out that if you introduce a, a bunch of shitty things and you roll back 90% of them, You've still move. You've still introduced ten percent shitty things yes. that weren't previously part of the deal. It's important not to forget that the end result of this is that Unity previously had a model where you paid for the program and did not pay a revenue share, and that was the model. You paid for the software because you weren't paying a revenue share, and that is no longer the case. Unity has changed that in a situation where people don't have any trust that they won't fuck things up again. I wanted to note, like, one specific story that came out of this, because, like, I I, I want to note that it's not as simple as just don't update to the new Unity version for some developers. There was a story on Eurogamer this week about a developer cancelling their uh, Wipeout-style racer that was supposed to be getting a Switch port, because... Nintendo has a policy that if you release a game on Switch, it has to be put together using the most up-to-date current version of Unity. And that means that this developer, who has been making a Switch Unity game, cannot release their Switch port anymore without being forced into accepting those new terms from Unity. It is an example of the fact that, like, even if you put trust in Unity not to fuck these things up again, it's still not as simple as just just don't use our new version because there are bits of the industry that kind of force you to be up to date sometimes. So yeah, Unity has really fucked up their reputation pretty irreparably. Yep. Yeah. Good. No getting around that, they fucked up big time. <laughs> that's, that's that story. There's really not much more nope. to it, is there? Nope. Just Unity fucked yep. up. We've got a couple of other little stories. Uh... So, you know, we talked about that big Xbox leak the other week, and that included a bunch of emails such as Microsoft talking quite openly about all of the studios they want to acquire. We've had a public response to that in the form of Capcom putting out a statement talking to Bloomberg saying that they would gracefully decline an acquisition offer from Microsoft. (laughs) Very, very um, tactfully put. Um, Yeah, I like that. Yeah. He he does acknowledge some of like the specifics of the situation. This was executive uh, Haruhiro Sushimoto said there was a time that we were a target. Capcom prefers organic growth over buying studios. They basically say they they'd rather be equal partners with Microsoft than be bought out, and that's not surprising. Capcom's doing very well for themselves right now. I'm not surprised that they're not particularly looking to get bought out by an American company. Yeah, that doesn't sound like something they'd be especially interested in. Uh, yeah. They're, they're yeah. doing fine. They're doing pretty good. 
I mean, I say they're doing pretty good. There was, uh, I didn't put it on the topic list, there was a quote from a Capcom executive today saying that he thinks games need to cost more money and that they're not expensive enough yet. Well, that doesn't mean that they're not doing fine, though. <laughs> that just means they no, want more money. No, it doesn't money. mean they're not doing fine, but... But I, I saw that and just immediately, and I've thought it before, no one's forcing you, bruh. No one's forcing you yeah. to spend that much money. The thing about corporations, right, is they need to be more fiscally responsible. Like, if they can't afford to do something, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe don't have so much avocado toast. Maybe stop treating themselves at the coffee shop you know (laughs) they need to be more responsible with their money and on a more serious note video game executives can whine about how much it costs to make games as soon as they address the problem of how much it costs to pay video game executives indeed other news we can get through this one real quickly fifa like ea's fifa fifa series isn't called fifa anymore it's eafc um, and EA no longer has the, the naming rights to FIFA. And one of the things that's come out of that is that every single FIFA game from the past has been delisted from all the digital storefronts. <laughs> They've just all vanished. You can't... Now, granted, I don't know how many people are clamouring to buy, like, FIFA 2015 at this point, but... The option no longer exists. You gotta go find it physical if you wanna play that one FIFA you're you're nostalgic about. Every single one of them has been delisted digitally because this is the world we live in now. Looking forward to that disc-free Xbox. Right, right, that disc-free future. It's going to be so good for us. And the last one, and this is probably the most interesting thing this week, or the most important thing coming up, the SAG-AFTRA members have overwhelmingly voted in favour of authorising a video game voice actor strike. Now, when I say overwhelmingly, um, 98.32% of SAG-AFTRA members voted in favour of strike authorization. Well, no, that's, that's the number of voting members. The actual, yeah, the number of members who voted was in, like, around, like, 27%, but that's not unusual. Yes, sorry, yes. It's of the 34,000 members that voted, 98% of those voted in favour of stri- strike authorization. You are correct. Point being, those who voted overwhelmingly voted in um, favour of this strike. Now, to be clear, this does not mean the video game industry is on strike currently. The way that this works is, because a strike vote has been authorised, this is a bargaining chip for negotiations with game developers. It basically means they're in a better position to go, these are the things we want to see improved for voice actors, if you do not give them to us, we are ready to strike on a moment's notice. So that is sort of where that situation is at. That being said, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict something. Um, and I don't think this is a wild thing to predict. We have a list of the studios that were mentioned as potential strike targets for the this voice actor strike. This includes EA, Activision, Insomniac... Epic Games, Take-Two Productions, Warner Bros, and some others. I think if we're going to see a strike, I think it's going to be soon. Because, particularly looking at this list, Insomniac has Spider-Man 2 coming out in less than a month. And that is their big game of probably the next couple of years. And I wouldn't be surprised if a strike is coming, if it gets authorised before that game's release to put 
pressure on strike negotiations. Well, um, uh, I don't know about I don't know about Spider Man. Like now, maybe if they are moving into production on DLC and haven't gotten that work done yet, but you know this that voice work was done for that project a year ago. The voice work is done, but a strike will prevent like paid activations for like. Uh, we're paying this streamer to stream our game and whatnot, and it will hurt promotion. Some, somewhat, somewhat, it will hurt hurt promotion. Yes, my my gut says like that is an obvious target that like a strike might start before to get some pressure done on. But I mean, the companies that are listed there are the ones who employ big name voice talent by and large. Yes. Um that's yeah. they are the obvious targets for a voice actor strike. A lot of the response that I've seen to this uh as as to be expected, I guess, by people who just want to be dismissive of collective action yeah. is well, it should be the developers. You know what? You're right. Them too. I agree with you. Yes. We should be doing something to help the developers, but that's not the voice actor's problem. The voice actor's problem Indeed. is that they need to get their material needs and fair uh, pay for their work. That's what is at issue yeah. with the voice actors. And if the voice actors are successful in striking and getting concessions from the industry, that should demonstrate to you that you can do it too. Or that developers Indeed. can do it too. And they should. Yep. And I, I want to make the point that, like, every time a strike successfully pushes through, like, and achieves its aims of bettering the contract they have with, uh, you know, the executives, it not only, like, proves that it can be done, but it establishes new things as norms within, you know, Absolutely. from those, those executives that other striking workers can then ask for and point to you approved it for their union, you can do it, we're making it a reasonable strike demand. And it's much harder for those executives to push back on. And a lot harder for them to offer them as minor concessions that they no longer are going to care as much about because, you know, to sweeten a pot and get you to not go after the things you want. You can just put that shit right in yeah. as part of the main package. Exactly. And, like, a great example of that is... As of the time we record this show, uh, the WGA uh, writer strike is now uh, tentatively yes, over. Yes, congratulations to the to the writers. That's great. I'm so glad you got a deal that actually looks like you got almost everything you wanted. They got the major things they were going for, which was residuals for streaming and no using AI to replace writers. Well, here's the thing with that is the plans Hollywood had were scary. For sure. AI is not where they need it to be to replace them. No. Not yet. Obviously, they want it to be. It is terrifying, and it is something we all need to think about. But I think what this strike has really done a good job of showing is that for as much as executives and capitalists want to rush us towards this AI future, it ain't there. No, but it's also yeah. important for us to like address it now. And just Absolutely, take it yeah. off the table before it becomes a threat yeah. that's greater than it exists. It's good yeah. we're addressing it now because yeah. Yeah. they don't have yeah. the, the power to replace people yet. Yeah. If it was ready, they'd have used it during the strike. Yes. And, like, they, they, yeah. 
Um, that being said, the reason I sort of brought the WGA victory up is because uh, a couple of those key victories are things that SAG-AFTRA's um, Screen Actors uh, strike currently, which is still ongoing. We are not done, uh, you know, with uh, striking against the AMPTP. But some of those things are directly like you can go this is going to be one of the major asks of this other union, and it's going to be so much easier for AI to be taken off the table and streaming residuals to be put on the table because a different union had a victory. Yep. And that's the way you've got to look at these things, is if the SAG-AFTRA voice actors union achieves, you know, gets like this list of video game companies to agree to, say, no AI and, um, you know, pay increases that match inflation or whatever it is, that's going to make it easier for other people within development companies to go, we should also be getting those. It's wins for everyone when unions make progress. Yep. So if this strike goes ahead, wait and hear from SAG after what that means in terms of, uh, you know, strike action. If it's anything like the uh, the TV and film strike at the moment, they will not be asking you listening to this podcast to boycott works they will not be asking you not to buy the the next you know uh, uh you know the next game from this list of studios but people who are in content creation space will be asked not to promote struck works and we'll see what that means in this context if that strike goes ahead so yeah good luck to them hopefully they get what they want and it would be great if they get what they're after without having to strike but if they do have to strike more power to them yep I think that's it. I think we've done it. All right. Did it. Fantastic. Good for us. Good for us indeed. Pat on the backs all round. Laura. Yeah? The hell have you done? <gasps> the hell have what, I done? What on earth have you done? Well, you can find me at Laura K. Buzz in all of the places you find stuff online. Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, TikTok, Patreon. That's the one that pays the bills as little as a dollar a month over there really helps. Uh, you can find me on Blue Sky, Mastodon, just Laura K. Buzz everywhere. Um, I've got new episodes of Accessibility going up every Friday. Um, last week's episode and this upcoming episode are both ones I am really proud of. Um, last week's episode was about the leaked patent that Nintendo filed for uh, resistive magnetic analog sticks and talking a lot about the potential accessibility positives and negatives of that being a technology that might end up in the Switch successor. Uh, the episode that's going up this week is about um, a new Xbox controller that was leaked in that big um, leaked set of Xbox stuff, specifically looking at the fact that it seems to have motion sensing capabilities and the positives accessibility-wise for introducing motion to Xbox controllers, but also like the long-term big-picture problem of no longer having parity between the Xbox Adaptive Controller and the default Xbox Controller, and why by 2028 Xbox would need to have a plan for how to address that and some potential options of how to go forward with it. It is a video I am super proud of, and I really hope people check it out on Friday when it goes up. What about you, Conrad? Where are you at on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Instagram and Blue Sky, and you can hang out with me on Twitch, where I've been playing some Stardew Valley, but I'm going to be doing some more miniatures painting, um, definitely this coming Friday. Come check that out. Uh, you can buy anti-capitalist propaganda and Jimquisition merchandise at mercenarycreative.com. 
And everything that I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And you know who else has a Patreon? Who? Uh, James Stephanie Sterling. Hi, hi, hi. Uh, yes, I do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash jimquisition. Uh, thank you, as always, for all the support on there. Uh, I Let's see, what's my next wrestling date? It is this Saturday, actually. September 30th, Ooh. I will be in Preston for PCW. I will be defending the PCW Women's Championship, which at the time of talking, I have been... The women's champion for 194, 95 days. Um, so close to 200 days as champion. Um, way longer than I expected to actually have it. So <laughs> go me. Uh, I will be defending that in Preston this Saturday, uh, Saturday 30th. So do um, look up PCW online for details about that. And then after that, you'd be able to catch me in Manchester on October 10th. And that will be the next Sovereign Pro Wrestling show. I will be in the second annual Crown Cup tournament. Well, not tournament, elimination match. Um where last year I kicked Simon Miller's and Kid Bandit's ass at the same time, and Simon's in it again, so it may yet again be an incredibly rare opportunity to see me and Simon between the ropes together. We shall see. Uh, until then, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.